Episode 217 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the Irish singer-songwriter and record producer Roshin Murphy. Roshin first became known in the 1990s as one half of the pop duo Maloko, alongside the English musician Mark Bryden. Their biggest hits included Sing It Back, The Time Is Now, Familiar Feeling and Forevermore. After the breakup of Maloko, Roshin embarked on a solo career. This interview took place in London in 2009, by which time she'd released two solo albums with international success. But we started by talking about her homeland. Do you have a special affinity with Irish artists, do you feel? I don't particularly feel that. I mean, I left Ireland when I was 12. I'm totally Irish. My home is Ireland. I have a house still in, in Wicklow and, um, and all that. But uh, my musical kind of background, I was around music as a child a lot, but not like fiddly-doo, fiddly-day. It was all sort of American songbook and jazz music, and that's what my family were into. My uncle Jim was a pretty famous musician in roundabout our parts, and... He had various bands, he had a big band and he had um, a, a jazz trio which I guess I was most intimate with because that was sort of the period of my life and when I was a little kid he was doing that every Sunday in Gardeners in, in Wicklow and my dad always sang but he, you know, as I said, that was more American songbook stuff. So yeah, we weren't, uh, we weren't steeped in traditional Irish music or anything like that and then I moved to Manchester when I was 12. When I got to be about 14, it just kicked off in Manchester, the whole music scene just... How influential uh, do you think your 12 or so years in Ireland were, have been on your music? On my songwriting, I think hugely, because everybody sang. People told stories through singing in Ireland, totally not consciously, not like... You know, we weren't like the van traps or anything like that, but we were a very social sort of extended family, and... um, Whenever there was parties and stuff, everybody, everybody, whether they could sing or they couldn't, had at least one song that they sang that was their party piece. And um, that was the entertainment for the evening, rather than having a record player on. It's funny because if it was just the one song, it seemed to sum them up. If it was like the party's over or something, it would be my Uncle Jim would sing that and it seemed to really sum him up and... My dad was a more sort of romantic type person and so he'd have more romantic songs. My mum used to sing The Lady is a Tramp, which, you know, kind of sums her up a little bit, you know, because she was quite irreverent, my mother, you know. And um, my Auntie Lindy, with my Uncle Jim, they used to sing, to give to you is to give to me true love. And they'd look in each other's eyes and of course it was a great love story, their relationship. Tell me about your parents' uh, names and occupations. My mother's called Rose. She was an antique dealer, but uh, now she's retired. My dad's called Mickey. Very large. Yeah, Mickey Murphy. He was always self-employed, my father. He had um, a business where he fitted bar furniture into, into pubs, and he did up pubs, and he built some pubs, actually, from scratch, and... He tried a bit of everything. He's a pretty good architect, actually, untrained. He also bought and sold lots of stuff. Like one day, 
picked me up in the morning in an articulated truck and he brought me to Dublin. Then he drove onto like a, a weighing scales with the truck, weighed it and then emptied it. It was full of secondhand lead and then weighed the truck with none in it and then got money for the lead and then we went into Dublin in an articulated lorry and uh, he spent an absolute fortune on me that day so whatever you want in Dublin you can have so at least one day of my life I had that experience where I got whatever I wanted Is it just you or... Um... I have a brother, yeah, a, brother. a lovely brother called Sean He's got a kitchen firm mm -hmm. and he fits kitchens and he's incredibly handsome and very, very clever and he's got two beautiful daughters, so, so I've got two nieces, yeah. Okay. I had a really pretty idyllic childhood, yes, yeah. What sort of a house did you grow up in? An old creaky house, big house, uh, leaky roof, that kind of uh, mentality, a beautiful old house. Really lovely, magical. When you were, if you, you say you grew up with all this music and stuff, did you do like uh, school productions and all that sort of stuff? Did you do, like, I did not. I did not. Pretty naughty actually as a kid. <laughs> Precocious maybe is the word, yeah. I didn't have any kind of uh, concentration levels really as a kid. I just veered from doing what I had to do, minimum of what I could get away with in school and, um, and having fun. What was the fun? <laughs> what was the fun entail? Oh, I don't know. Breaking a few windows and <laughs> climbing a few trees and being a bit of a troublemaker. A bit, I guess, as a kid, as a, as a young kid, I guess I was quite handful. And then when I came to Manchester, start again, new slate. Are oh, you saying you didn't do like school productions or anything? But was there a moment when you heard a record or something that really made you? fascinated by music or was music your outlet when you were being given a hard time at school? Or? No, I was surrounded by music in terms of the people yeah. in my family were all pretty musical, uh, uh, lesser and greater degrees. Mm -hmm. My uncle Matt, who's a very successful press photographer now in Ireland, always like, has been for years, no. Matt Kavanagh, he collected records, so I had this sort of uh, model for that even as a child. He's got massive, like thousands and thousands and thousands of jazz records, really rare ones. So, there's that. Were there any gigs in Ireland when you were a kid? No, no, there wasn't many gigs to go to in our club, to be honest. Well, I mean, there was obviously lots of uh, bands would play in local pubs and stuff. We had a thing, we had an Irish, we had a, a festival every summer and bands would play on the street and stuff like that. But I, I didn't get into music until I went to Manchester, into, into music. And that wasn't as a musician or anything, but as a person who was obsessed with music. And were you a beautiful kid? Were you, as a child, were you, did you stand out in that way? It's not for me to say, is it? No, I, I suppose I was, really. <laughs> were you strikingly pretty? Did lots of people say? Well, I think I was a pretty child, yes, yeah. yeah. We both were, my brother and I. I mean, we were a good-looking family, let's yeah. put it that way. Did anyone ever say to you as a youngster, there's something about you, you're, you know, you're a bit special? You will go yes, the they said way. it to me all the time. <laughs> Parents and me aunties and me, you know, if I got picked on and I went home and see me auntie Linda, but she'd tell me it's because they're jealous. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. This, my nana was like, she's got to be tops. And my grandmother, I have to say to my mother's mother, was an incredibly stylish woman. And she was a, quite a powerful woman. She ran sort of four businesses at the height of 
what she did, you know, she was at her full strength, full capacity. And um, she was quite the matriarch, really. And she, I guess, pinned a lot on me because I was the only granddaughter. And I think I've, I've inherited quite a lot from her. It's certainly the way I dress and stuff as well, because she would dress quite masculine to sort of go along with the amount of responsibility she had. You know, you'd see her in the floor length, mink coat, the red lipstick. Mm -hmm. Then I had a great aunt called Rosie, who was just a wild gal, my mother's aunt. And she was literally in the pub dancing on the table, singing until she was 98. And she had been all over Africa, lived in, you know, India, um, incredible things that sort of gone on mm. at that side of the family there. Did the idea of show business and music or glamour appeal to you? Was it, did, did you kind of think, I'd love to go into a world like that one day? No, I wasn't like my nieces are. I wasn't like young kids are now. I wasn't sort of obsessed with fame or um, celebrity. By any means to stretch the imagination. I loved films, I loved clothes, dressing up. But it wasn't like I wanted to be famous. I fell into doing what I do, and uh, up to that point, I thought I'd be an artist. As I always thought I'd be special. I'd do something easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I never thought I'd have to really graft. Not to say that I don't. I mean, everything takes graft now. You know, mm. you've got to graft. But I never thought I'd, I'd have a really ordinary life. I always thought I'd have some kind of special life. Did you? What do you think made you think that? All the things that I've said and more, you know, all the people around me were special. No, nobody worked for anybody. That's what I'm telling you. Everybody worked for themselves and whether it's successful or not, that's a really important model for me in my, in my life. What do you think your parents wanted you to do? They didn't want me to do anything than what I wanted to do. And we had a tough time, you know, they broke up and stuff when I was a teenager. And I think they thought if I just got through it, it would be enough, to be honest. So. I've done that and more, so that's great. How old were you when they broke up? Uh, Fifteen. And do you remember how they explained it to you, how they broke it to you? It's not like that. <laughs> they didn't have to explain it. You know, we're all very honest in the family, so arguments happened and everything was, uh, everything's always been out on the table with my family. We're extremely um, honest people and we're very forgiving as well. Just have that capacity to forgive one another. When you're honest in a family and you can forgive, then you get to a point where you can kind of really know each other as people. And I can honestly say that my parents are my best friends. They're my best friends. And had they been perfect or tried to show a, an image of perfection to me, I don't think that would be the case. Because I'd be, I'd be paranoid about how imperfect I am. How distressing was it at the time, though, that they parted company? Not very to me. I think more so to my brother. I mean, when I say not very, obviously it wasn't good. But I think my brother was more shocked by it, even though he's older. I think his move to Manchester was more difficult anyway, because he was more established as a sort of adult, he was almost an adult. So he was more, uh, his roots were stronger in Ireland. And then for them to go ahead and break up after we'd moved there was, was pretty devastating to him. But um, to me, I think I just knew it was coming and uh, I just got on with it. No intention whatsoever going back to Ireland with your mother. Just wasn't going to do that. So, how did it work? Did your dad stay in England and your mum went back to Ireland? Dad was in England for a while, yes, so I wasn't totally alone, but I lived on my own. I found myself a flat. At the age of? Just turning 16. 16, mm. wow. 
and your mum wanted you to go back with her to Ireland, but you decided she not did. to. Yeah, she wanted to. You say in, in one of the biographies that you didn't <coughs> feel that she was capable of looking after you. What did you mean by that? I think she would have been capable of looking after me. I just, I felt, I can say no more than I felt it was better for me without being able to intellectualise it at the time or really understand why I felt it was better for me to stay. And I just stayed. I was happy where I was, mm. apart from my mum and dad breaking up. Mm. Everything else was making me very happy. So going out to see bands and hang around with my weird friends and going to, you know, the arts cinema and um, going to galleries and reading books and developing along my way. Educating myself outside of school, really, was perfect for me in Manchester at that point. And it wouldn't have been perfect for me to go backwards. It felt totally wrong for me to go back to Arklow at that point. And certainly, I think what I meant in that interview was... Uh, my mother didn't know it, but she probably needed time to just go and mend herself. Yeah. You know, my mother really wanted me to come with her. Begged me to come with her. No, big rouse about it. No, I'm not coming. But it was better for everybody in the end, I think, and she would probably say too, that uh, that I didn't go with her. That she went back and she spent a year just sort of mending herself, and then she got back up on her feet and started working again, and she was grand. And what was it like for you, the big change from Arklow to Manchester? I mean, what was the difference? Oh, God, it was, uh, you know, I really didn't see many black faces in Arklow. And mm -hmm. There wasn't big nightclubs in Arklow. There wasn't art galleries and there wasn't the corner house cinema. And there wasn't, you know, everybody was a heavy metaler in Arklow mm -hmm. <laughs> at the time. And um, as it turned out, I got into Sonic Youth and... Um, that kind of thing, so I was like not a heavy metaler. Oh. It's a really shallow reason not to want to go back, but that's part of the reason why I just felt like I couldn't go back, to be honest. It was just something that I embraced totally mm. when I got there. I loved it. And you explained you'd go out to see bands and whatever. I mean, your parents didn't mind you doing that, even though you were quite a young girl. Well, that started about age 14, and bands are okay. I mean, you'd be back before half ten or eleven o'clock and um, a friend Duncan who was my best friend um, his mum used to drop us off and pick us up she, to much to his sort of dismay because she'd be sort of sat outside in her Skoda <laughs> waiting for her she'd be like I told you to park around the corner <laughs> Not very street, but no no well I didn't never mind I was always laughing at that at that you know, 14, 15, 16 type of age, what did you think would be your future? Did you ever contemplate it or did you just live each day as it came sort of thing? I didn't contemplate it very much, honestly. I really didn't. Every day as it came was pretty much as much as I could cope with at that point. The only thing I thought was I'd go to art college. I really thought I'd end up doing art somewhere. I did a foundation course in Sheffield. And then I was going to go back to Manchester to study art and I met Mark and I got a record deal. Pretty big Irish community in Manchester, I imagine. Did you sort of keep together? Did you go no, to Irish I didn't have no Irish connections whatsoever, yeah. apart from my family. Yeah. I just went around with a load of lads who wore black and were into the Jesus and Mary chain, that's it. <laughs> so you were a goth, were you? I, well, I mean, no, we weren't. We definitely wouldn't have called ourselves goths. That's, we would have been ashamed of our life. I mean, goths were into 
the Sisters of Mercy, the mission, and um, we always thought that was rather silly. So now the Mary Chain are more sort of sixties uh, psychedelic goth, if you know what I mean, <laughs> <Matt> mixture. <laughs> And then we were into Sonic Youth, and okay. that was my first favourite band. Mm -hmm. And I saw them play live when I was 14, and Very never ch and changed everything for me, really. Mm -hmm. I had a load of U2 records, I went to the shop the next day, sold the U2 records, and bought a Sonic Youth one. Was it significant that U2 were Irish and you were selling them? I think it was my 13th birthday, I got the Joshua Tree on tape, I loved it, and, uh, and a tape machine. And then I started collecting U2 records and I had quite a few rare ones, bits and bobs like um, and a few bootlegs and like uh, special editions and things like that. So shallow when you're that age. I went and sold them straight after this because I had no money after spending it on a tout ticket for Sonic Youth. So the next day I sold all the U2 records and bought like one brand new Sonic Youth record. Have you met them on YouTube? Have you ever encountered them? Yeah, I've met Bono. Have you? Yeah. Bono. He, he spoke to my mum on the phone. He was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. How and when did you meet Bono? Um, I met him a couple of times, but the most significant was, I suppose, at the um, MTV Awards a few right. years ago. Yes. And hung out a bit with him, so. Did he talk to you and say hi? Oh, yeah, he was really nice to me, yeah. 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 I can remember things that he said to me. I'm not going to go into it, but I have to say they're quite hard to understand. <laughs> it's quite hard to figure out what he's saying. What do you mean? Ah, oh, just that's it. I'm not talking about it anymore. Because of his Irish accent, or because no, he's... no, just because he's a little bit sort of poetic in oh, his, okay. his speaking. That so, but yeah, he said he, he said he really liked Maloko, and you know so. And he was very sweet to me, very sweet, and he spoke to my mum on the phone. So you gave him your mobile, so could you just have a Yes, yeah, say hello. Mammy, here, somebody here wants to talk to you. And then he goes, how are you, Rose? <laughs> <laughs> but the best, the best person my mother ever spoke to on the phone because of me was Mo Molan. Oh, right. And like, she's, Mo Molan's like a hero of my mother's. And I met Mo at a nanny, you know, Jules Holland's nanny. Yes. she was at that. And I said, there's somebody here who wants to talk to you, man. I put her on the phone and she's like, gosh, you're such a lovely woman, that woman. Oh. She was wicked. Hello, Rose. Mum was like, you're well. the greatest person of the last century. Did she say that to yeah. I didn't know react to that. <laughs> very bashfully and very oh. modestly. And when Bono came on the phone to your mum, did, did she believe it was him? Or yeah, she, she did, yes. How are you, Bono? How's it going? Which he's liked it anyway. Almost every housewife in Ireland has spoken to him at some point. <laughs> yeah. What took you from Manchester to Sheffield? Uh, I met a fellow in Manchester who was um, partway through his architecture course in Sheffield. He was from Manchester and he was doing his uh, internship in Manchester, which mm. is sort of toward the end of the so seven-year course. You have to go back and do two years after that. So I had to go back and I went back with him. And uh, how did you find Sheffield? I loved it. You loved Sheffield. Yeah, I took a sort of year out the first year I went there. And I kind of went to college with him. <laughs> I sort of uh, sneaked into a lot of his um, lectures and stuff, yeah. Without being an official student? Yeah, they got used to seeing me around the place, Salter Lane. What did you do yourself other than going into his lectures and stuff? I had various jobs that I found very hard to cl to hold down, like being a waitress and stuff like that, sandwich maker, 
Are you hopeless at it? Dreadful. The worst ever. Give me your worst moment in a menial job. Oh, I think. I mean, I was threatened with a knife by a cook in the. Uh, yeah, yeah. What did you do? I was just rubbish. And he was mad. Oh. So, yeah, dreadful. Dreadful. Worked in a, in a fruit and veg shop, and the man, I think, must have been a perv, and he. Uh, he sort of um, told me to go upstairs and clean his bathroom. He stood over me watching me clean his, mm. clean his bathroom in his flat. So I gave that job up, as you can imagine. I did a silver service restaurant and I was absolutely terrible at that too, you know, with all the different things you've got to know and carrying various plates on the one arm and spilling things and just getting generally in the way. <laughs> so then I, I, I got into the college in Sheffield to do the foundation course in art and then I had a place in Manchester so I wasn't good at holding down jobs now. Mm. How good was your art? Were you quite promising at art? Um, yeah, I think I was alright. Yeah, I was brave, you know, mm. so I would have had that kind of uh, boundary pushing sort of attitude to it, I guess. Some art teachers really liked it and some art teachers didn't like it at all. Did you sell any pictures? No. Still even try. Yeah, somewhere. I've got, I've got my portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you think now about the, the art? Do you think maybe you'll go back to it one day, even just as a hobby? I, mean? I feel like it's part of what I do anyway. Mm. I feel like um, the singing has allowed me to be a visual artist mm -hmm. in lots of ways. So in ways that probably would have took me a lot longer to have that kind of money to play with, to make videos and make imagery and work with photographers and, and, and designers and stuff like that, you know, at, at a very high end, so I've been very lucky in that sense. It's a great job for me, this, because it, it encompasses all that. Mm. But when you were doing those little jobs that you weren't very happy in, did you always kind of think, one day I'll be okay, you know, something's good's going to come my way? Yeah, I think as long as I was making friends that interested me and that I was still learning and discovering and to this day is still something that's very important to me. Then I felt all right. I felt like I was going somewhere. You know, I'm making money, but you know, I read a book or I saw a movie or I had a conversation that sort of enriched me. It, 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 I think those things are the more important things in life. And that's personally when I felt best about myself was when those sorts of things were happening and still is to, to, to this day. Do you not have a sixth sense, though, that something quite special was going to come along? No, well, just as I said to you, I never thought I'd have a very drab life. Well, quite the opposite. I mean, you know, you've done extremely well. You're still I've done are, okay, I've done all right, yes. <laughs> I've, yeah, right, I've managed yeah. to be creative for my entire working life, which uh, is, a, is a great achievement, yeah. Mm. I'm not a multimillionaire or, you know, Certainly there are people who I've worked with who would have preferred me to be even more successful than I am. But when I really kind of boil down to it, I look at what I've done and, and how my life has panned out, I feel extremely lucky and blessed. Why do you think there are people who wish you'd done things differently? Well, record companies would have liked me to sell, like, 10 million records instead of 1 million or you know what I mean so there's always that pressure there's always a commercial pressure on what you do mm. and do you think you've deliberately not gone too mainstream because it's just not in your nature I just don't like crap mm. I don't like crap stuff I don't like crap clothes I don't like crap music I don't like crap buildings I don't like crap cars I don't like throwaway culture try to avoid it at all costs 
and I'm not going to um, fill the world with more shit. So you've been asked to do things that you've turned down, that they wish Oh, for sure, yeah. Because you didn't feel that it was, it was right for you. There's been songs that I've made and there's been things that I've not done and, you know, there's just been arguments along the way. I mean, to this day, we'll never know whether those things would have been more commercial decisions anyway, yeah. in the long run. You know, there's always an argument that you could damage your commercial prospects by being rubbish, too, you know. So, um, my father-in-law, for better, for want of a better word, because I'm not married, but my boyfriend's father asked me what my market was the other day, and I said, well, same as Simon's, who's my boyfriend. Um, it's for people who want quality. Yeah. It's not for any particular age group or any particular um, persuasion whatsoever, really. It's for people who love quality, things, beautiful music, nice images. In Simon's case, great paintings or want to make an amazing video or da da da, -da. So if you could go back in time and someone would say to you, had you gone down that path, you'd make another five million or something, you just still said, no, I'm happy with the choices I've made. And well, nobody can say that to me, so that's a, that's a kind of a stupid question. <laughs> you don't mind me saying Nobody will ever be able to say that to me. Sure, no. I mean, part of it is, I don't believe that that would have happened right. necessarily out of making crap. Mm -hmm. So. so how much of a watershed was meeting Mark in Sheffield then? God, when I think about it, it was like madness, really. It's just mm. crazy. Can you remind us of them when you met him? What it was like? Well, I sort of was kind of love at first sight. Where were you? In a party in, in a basement in Sheffield, or a bashment, as they called it, then. 93 or 94. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a big moment. The, at the time you sensed it was something special. Yeah, yeah. And obviously it worked at a close level as well. He was a professional. You turned out to be very successful together. It's very hard to explain what, what that was all about. I went into the studio with him the first night I met him as a non-singer, as somebody who just wanted to... He wanted me to say, do you like my tight sweater? See how it fits my body. Did you object to that? As Not at all. Well, I mean, it was my saying, but right. um, <laughs> yeah. One of your phrases. It was what I said. I was going around saying that that night. I was a bit drunk, and I was wearing a tight sweater, and he heard me saying it, or I said it to him, and he wanted me to record it. He wanted to record it. He had a big studio at the time that he owned, called Fon Studios or Pat owned, in Sheffield, and it was pretty common practice for him or other people involved in it to go down there in the middle of the night and use dead time and you know when you're in, in the party mood and get a gang down there whatever so me and him went down and just um, recorded me saying that and he built like a little loop and um, that was the start of everything that night you know so everything started at the in the one gulp so it turned out, but at the time, did you just think... Oh, this is just a stupid thing, yes, yeah, absolutely. Nothing would come of it? Nothing at all, I didn't think anything. Mm. Just, I just wanted to be with him, really, and I think he just wanted to be with me. And um, so we fell in love that night, and then I think like the week later we were at another party and I started going, oh my God, look at all these pretty weirdos, because it was full of party weirdos. <laughs> And then we went into the studio in the middle of the night and did a song called Party Weirdo, which is not me singing, it's more me 
acting, I suppose, pretending to be a valley girl, LA girl, like who's really frightened of all the party weirdos, but really she's the biggest party weirdo. And he chats on it as well. He's like, oh my God, this is so exotic. And we're just having to laugh. And then he had done some more tracks, which were funny as well, which had samples of like other people on, on and stuff. And his manager kind of put them all together and brought them to London. And um, a couple of people were interested. I was like, what? And then Mark was like, I was like, are you sure? You, you, I think we should have a meeting with this guy, da, 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 da. I was like, what? And Mark just said, look, I've got nothing better to do. Whatever happens, happens, you know. Let's go for it. Let's see what people say. And so we got signed, I think, very small little deal, although it was a six album deal, but tiny in terms of money and everything. With them thinking this was going to be like a breakbeat type, um, mostly instrumental thing. But then there was an American guy at the label and it, he was very full on. And had he not been there, I think it would have taken a lot longer for it to develop into what it did. I probably would have done it in the end anyway, but he really pushed us into making me sing more because he heard, I think it was on Party Weirdo or something, like a little snippet of, of me singing. And he played it to us over and over again. He was shouting at us and saying, you gotta get her to sing, Mark. That shit's like Nina Simone. <laughs> All this, we were like, we were like totally cringing. Because we were like from Sheffield and everybody's dead gruff in Sheffield. I've never said anything nice about anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but there's no shit talk in Sheffield, you know? So, I think a combination of being bored of just, and also running out of ideas of, like, stuff to say. We started writing songs, and he taught me to sing, and taught me all I needed to know about writing, and was a very hard taskmaster, and he didn't want me to write things about you and me and love and you know he pushed me to be more creative than that is that because he felt you'd be exposing your own relationship a little bit no just like you true do things you know corny. crap rhymes yeah. corny things he wouldn't let me do and he was uh, he was just a great producer actually so um he got a lot of really good stuff out of me so and i got a great stuff out of him so and how much of that was because you were in an intimate relationship? Well, that first record, if you listen to it, it's just the sound of being in love. That's all it is. Mm. That's just, just all it is. Being completely equal with somebody. Two people totally equal. Having fun. Totally in love. It's um, by microcosm of that. And that sort of isn't going, I love you, you love me. It's mm. sort of going... Killer bunnies are coming, and you know, party weirdo, and it's just uh, pure joy, you know, that first record. And because you, you explained you fell into it sort of accidentally, you weren't expecting it, did you kind of think people really they like this stuff? I mean, uh, yeah. Because you just thought it's like, you know, if you've done a painting and you thought it was rubbish, and you'd sell them, people would go mad about it. I don't think I thought it was rubbish. I certainly didn't. I didn't think it was rubbish. You know, that's not not true. Mm. I thought it was pretty deep, you know. I think we had an arty approach to it. 
it wasn't like um, at any point we were creating um, a star vehicle for me or and had that been the case I think Mark would have run a mile from that the songs were little worlds little stories little puzzles the record initially was going to be um, three dolls and not not me and him three dolls were going to be Maloko and then and we put out the first single and that was it we had three dolls we had a doll on the cover and two dolls on the inside cover what do you mean by dolls they were going to be it was going to be like a girl band but but, but three dolls so you do the music you mean and the video was the three dolls as well three attractive young girls dolls no dolls plastic dolls yeah okay Right. Yeah, in raincoats. So you'd never see you, it would just be seen <laughs> yes, them. Yes, exactly, that was the big concept, right? Okay, right? And then um, and then we made that video, the first video, and it was absolute crap. <laughs> and I think it just sort of seemed like a stupid idea after a bit. So uh, then I made a video. And when I say I, I mean we did, but I guess I do the most of the performance in the video, so I kind of took the brunt of that all the way through my logo. I mean, I couldn't sleep the night before at all, thinking, what the hell have I got myself into here as this work out? Then I went in to do the video the next day and it felt so easy and natural to perform in front of the camera and I had an understanding of it that I didn't know I had. And um, then I felt like, okay, I think I actually am a performer. That's what a natural thing for me to do. The, the thing is, it does satisfy my creativity. It satisfies the part of me that wants to sing. Certainly now as I get older, I sing more and more. I would have never sung in front of anyone, you know, when I was 18 or whatever. But now I love singing. It's very natural to me. Where did uh, the name Maloko come from? We nicked it off Clockwork uh, Orange. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, it, the performance part of it is very important as well. So I get all all sort of aspects of myself satisfied through this job. I get to be the gaffer, which, you know, I'm born to be, obviously, because all my family are gaffers. I get to uh, write songs, I get to sing, I get to make imagery, and then, to top it all off, I get to perform, which is, the, as it turned out, something that I was meant to do. And it seems to be the music industry these days is a lot about image and especially with attractive young women. Do you feel that you were used in that way like some artists have said? Never. Never. I mean, I always dressed a bit weird. Right. Always dressed a bit weird. But actually, when I look back on it, it was pretty timeless, some of the images, well, most of the images that I've made. Even if I do say some of the stuff, sounds really big-headed. But it's fucking true. I mean, the the imagery is very very timeless that, that I've made along the way. So I'm proud of that, mm. and nobody's ever styled me. It's always been a surprise. Every, every aspect, as I said to you, everything in the career that's come along has been a, um, a surprise to everybody, including me, including the record labels, including da, 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 you know, including Mark, including all of us. Do you think at any stage being a good-looking young girl helped? It doesn't. It doesn't harm anything to be not a pig ugly. I'm not saying I'm the best looking girl in the world, and I'm not, but you know, you're fighting against, against it a little bit if you're uh, not pleasant on screen. Were you asked to do the lads magazines things like that, like so many young artists seem to be these days? Not much, I don't think, really. No. What would you have said if they'd come your way? What, like, 
Would you do swimwear, love? Yeah, Would you well, do lingerie? Stuff, yeah. No, I don't think so. Right. Is that against your principles? I haven't got a good enough body. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do have a fabulous body, actually. But um, no, I mean, as I said, it wasn't about me being no. a star for many, many years, right the way up to really toward the end of Maloco. It wasn't about that at all. And by the time it got to be more about that, and I started to go solo, I was in far too strong a position by then for anything like that to start to happen to me. I was, I'd already learned too much. At the beginning, I was very protected from all of that because it wasn't about it. Did you take that much more care over your appearance, though, when you started to get rid of... Not any more care, but I think as a performer, I took more interest in terms of how I put a show together and uh, slightly choreographing a show and um, rearranging songs so that they told more of a story. And I might talk to the lighting director and things like that, that, that were never really on the table, so they were never really part of the Maloco psyche. They became more so as I stepped out of that and into being Roshi Murphy. So do you kind of style the whole image of Maloco in the end? Mark's very visual too, mm. super visual, and always was a big part of how the sleeves were, and, and the videos to some extent. I was more the videos than him, but he was involved and he had great taste. Why didn't it work out with him? I don't know, a multitude of reasons, I suppose. It just came to an end. I mean, we were together for eight years, mm -hmm. pretty good for somebody yeah. through their 20s. Um, I don't know, I didn't really know until uh, certainly a few years later that um, it would make such a massive difference to me creatively. But it did. It did, honestly. How hard was it to continue with Maloko when you were no longer an item? It wasn't easy. Already had worked the last couple of years communicated to each other. And when you finally called it a day, mm -hmm. what was that day like? The very last gig was mm. hilarious. We were played in Turkey at this uh, beach place. Amazing, amazing place actually. My musical director, Eddie, we've been saying for a week, right, when we go to Turkey, we're going to start drinking on the day before, because we're travelling the day before, and we're not going to stop drinking until like, we're definitely going to drink all the way up to the gig. We're all going to get... We all knew in our hearts this was the end of it. We weren't really saying it, but we knew it was... Okay, so the last gig on the schedule is probably not going to ever happen again. And so we got on, the, we all got on the uh, plane in. We all went to Heathrow. All the crew and the band started drinking gins. Got really drunk, got really drunk, more drunk on the plane. Got picked up in Turkey. I uh, said to the man, how long does it take to get to the hotel? He said, 45 minutes. Five hours later, we're in the pitch black up the side of a mountain. Your man's completely lost. Screaming at each other, not just me and Mark, everybody. Everybody fighting with everybody. Me crying, stop the bus, you know, walking down the road, the side of the road, the tears in my eyes, the bus like crawling along beside me, then get back on the bus, more arguments. You know, I'm talking about the most emotion there ever was, ever. And then, and then finally I said, stop the bus in front of a shop. I literally lost for five hours. We were lost for five hours. So got out and called a taxi from the shop. And I got in the taxi and 
the bus followed the taxi to the hotel. It took about 10 minutes. You know, it was like one of them where you'd cried so much and the, the eyes were out like this. And and then one by one, I was sitting on the, on the beachfront. The next day, they all came to me and apologised. So that was fine. And then when we came to do the gig, it was like the best gig of our lives. Was and then, Yeah, and it was in such a beautiful place. And I just love Turkey. It's like a spiritual home for me. It's one of my favourite places. Then we got took to parties like all over the place and different beaches and stuff that night and we stayed up all night and we were all in the sea together and then me, me crew we were like wearing my underwear in the sea and it was just what? like total mental fun and just hugging and loving and I mean it couldn't have been more opposite to the night before it was like we got all the negativity out the night before and then did the gig, this amazing gig, and then spent the whole night together, the whole gang of us. And um, it was a pretty amazing experience, the last gig. Was it always booze with Maloko, or was it never drugs? It's very hard to avoid uh, drugs completely in the rock and roll uh, industry, but I don't think I'd be sitting here today if I was a big drug head, or if any of us were, really. But just a dabble here and there. You never know, I'm not even going to go into it, it's so boring. It's so uninteresting, and I really would hate to kind of uh, talk about drugs, actually, because I don't want to encourage anyone to take them. Have you seen some bad things? I've seen that many bad things. I just don't want to be responsible for any bad things to happen. Sure. And your parents, did they worry about you going into that industry because of that kind of thing? My parents are pretty, uh, you know, no, but everybody knows I'm strong that knows me. Mm. And how do they feel about your music? Were they into it? Do they like your stuff? They love it. My mum especially understands it, I think. Mm. She gets it. She gets that it's good mm. and uh, that the lyrics are interesting. And How did they feel about Mark? Were they fond of him? Yeah, they were. Very so your, your final goodbye with him, you were just, it says you shook his hand or something? Well, I mean, that was, that was the final goodbye. Mm. That was it. I mean, I hardly seen him. I've seen him at a funeral, you know. I don't sort of hang out with him now. Mm. Um, so you have seen him since? Because I, I read that you hadn't seen him since. You see him at funerals and weddings, that's about it. Right. Um, we've got shared friendships still. Um, so. What's it like seeing him? Nice. You still feel a bond? No, not a bond, really. I feel like uh, there's, a, there's a history there. There's a, he's in a very, very important part of my life. Mm -hmm. And he is most important. He taught me the most important lessons in my career. But I don't feel a bond. I don't feel there is a bond between us at this point. Mm. So did you feel you were always destined to go solo after a while? I didn't feel it when I was even that last night after the crying night and the night of the gig and the in the sea with the crew with my underwear on. Mm. <laughs> even at that point, I didn't feel it. But pretty much the next day after I got back, uh, I was in the studio with Matthew Herbert, but I'd always promised that I would do some tunes with Matthew, who'd done lots of remixes for us over the years, and so um, as soon as I could, I, I did, and that turned into an album, mm -hmm. which uh, was obviously going to be a Roshi Murphy record, because Matthew wasn't going to promote it, but it was made in a similar way to Maloko, in that it was just me and him. And uh, so I didn't feel like a big jump until I guess until I delivered the record, and then I felt like ah, oh, 
okay. Really do someone here right, helping me out yeah. delivering this record because mm. uh, it was a, it's a very avant-garde record and pretty ahead of its time, I think. And it wasn't understood in the label why I've made this record. So it would have been handy to have a mark sitting there going, that is really actually very good and you guys haven't got a clue. But suddenly I found myself on my own doing that. Did you ever come close to calling him and saying, come and help us out here? No. <laughs> Not at all, no. But, you know, I mean, mm. that was my first taste of... That was feeling like a solo artist. Mm. I was not in the studio, I was feeling like suddenly I'm Roisin Murphy, the solo artist. But delivering the record, I felt the responsibility of making your own records, delivering them and putting your own name on it and standing by it. When I last heard you were doing a third solo album, what's happening about that? Oh, it's just going on. I'm writing at the moment and um, I've got about sort of 10 tracks done. and. I'd like to do like three times that many really before I'm, I'm put it together as an album. Not 30 out, 30 track album, but have 30 to choose from. And do you kind of wish now that you'd gone a bit more mainstream, that you perhaps would be, you know, raking it in and be doing even bigger concerts or? No, if anything, I wish people would, would give me a bit more of a chance sometimes. Things like, um, I don't think I've made on commercial music. I mean, even the most avant garde record I've ever made, like, Turns out to go into very mainstream areas like Grey's Anatomy or onto So You Think You Can Dance. Like most of the records have been used on one of the biggest primetime shows in America. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I just um, sometimes I wonder do I need to have like some lizard people working for me or something like that? <laughs> you know? You're signed to EMI, are you? Uh, I was signed to EMI, yeah. But not anymore? No. Why is that? Because the EMI, EMI, the label went, which is the label that I was signed on yeah. to. There wasn't anybody there anymore that I knew or got on with. Right. So who are you with now? Then? I'm not on a label at the moment, but that will not stop me putting records out. Right. And what happened with your... When you get injured in 2007, you had an eye injury or something. Yeah. What happened there? And how is it now? I had back-butted my head into a chair. How? Performing. And then on stage, mm -hmm. you headbutted a chair. Yeah, I was headbanging. And there was a chair there that I was using to perform on the chair. And it was a tiny little stage and I sort of forgot myself and, you know, was millimetres away from taking my eye out. Yeah, sounds like that. So and you rushed to hospital? In Moscow. In Moscow? Yeah, it wasn't good. Were you rushed to Can hospital? Can you see it? It's there. It's you had a slight scar on your eyebrow. Yeah, yeah I had to come back to England straight away, pretty much, to see a plastic surgeon. Really? Mm. It was like, it was flapping. I mean, my eyes are kind of, I haven't got Angelina Jolie's lips, and I haven't got, you know, really the best thing I've got going for me is my eyes, in other words, and yeah. I just was very worried that, that, that I would have a totally different look. And I said to the, the guy, who was Italian, I said, I don't care what you do. I said, I don't care if I have a scar. What I care about is if the expression in my eye changes at all. Yeah. I just don't want that. Well, he kind of fell in love with me when I said that. I said, I'm not inter interested in perfection. I just want the same expression in my eye. Yeah. It will be, don't you? Yeah. Ah, this is lovely so when you, I said that. Your eyesight's fine. Oh, yeah, no, it didn't go near my eyesight. It didn't go near my eyesight. It would have just been a cosmetic issue had I yeah. not had it dealt with properly. Yeah. 
But it's still, I mean, it's the scar. And he literally was saying, I can probably do it so there's no scar whatsoever, but I don't want to do it too tightly and da 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 da. So we kind of came up with a scar's okay, but but not any change in the way the eyebrow is or, you know. Well, I don't think that's going to be my world anymore, really. Right. I think I'm going to put out the records I want to make, when I want to put them out. Mm -hmm. And that means that, you know, I should be starting to release kind of 12 inches and bundles and special editions and, and stuff like that by the end of the summer, whenever I feel like it, actually. <laughs> So that's the kind of career I want to make for myself. And it'll always be very high quality music and the performances will always be very high quality and the imagery will always be beautiful. And I don't th I think that's ageless and timeless, that those ideas. Plus, I'm not looking too bad for 36. You look terrific, thank you. What about kids? Yeah. Soon? Yeah, probably. One day? As soon as I can. Mm. And do you think you might gravitate more towards Ireland? I don't know. I don't really plan that far ahead. As, I, as I've told you, everything in my career, you're doing it before you've even thought about doing it. So I don't know. What about the movies or something like that on TV? Would you fancy I'd be doing it before I was talking about doing it. What's that? You know what I mean? I'd find myself in a, in a movie before I'd start thinking, I really want to be in a movie. That's kind of the way my life is, if you know yeah. what I'm, I don't plan those sorts of big career moves and so on. You've not been made any offers yet? Like... I've been made offers, yeah. Can't yeah. Can't tell us about Not at the moment. Mm. Well, what about fashion? Because that's a big part of your life. Are you designing a lot at the moment? I'm designing a pair of sunglasses, which is why I've got to go. Because I've got to go and meet the people over at uh, Linda Farrow. Right. So that's the first thing you'll see that's by me. Well, we'll have your own label on. Well, yeah. there'll be Roisin Murphy for yes. Linda Farrow. Oh. What else would you like in your future? Just, as I said, just to be creative, have every kind of creative outlet open to me whenever I fancy it, to be honest. And when, you know, hopefully, you know, many, many decades to come, you left this planet, how do you want to look back on your life? How do you want people to remember you? Oh, I don't care if they remember me or not, I'll be dead. <laughs> <laughs> I just really want to enjoy every day that I'm alive. 